Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. It's a bit of a special episode this week. We're in the process of closing out 2023 and kicking off 2024, which I'm sure you're in the exact same boat of at the minute. Over the past 12 months, we've recorded around 43 episodes. And before we kick on into the new year, I wanted to pick out some of my favorite parts from all of the conversations I've had over the last 12 months. So coming up next are 11 of my favorite conversations that I've had with sales leaders, CEOs, sales trainers, coaches, and the rest over the past 12 months. Hope you enjoy and wishing you a happy and successful 2024. We would win a client, we'd do a big flashy pitch, win a client, and then proceed to put them through one of the most horrendous onboarding experiences um, of all time. And, and a big part of that was doing anti-money laundering checks. So making sure these corporations weren't laundering money and, and making sure that you know all of their documentation was in order. Um, at the bank, it's a horrendously man- manual process. And I, I remember sitting there going, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. Uh, so that's essentially what what came at first AML. So about four years ago, we decided, hey, let's get out of finance and um, make that onboarding process uh, easier for what really is um, some of the most expensive purchases people make. When, when you're borrowing 10, 20, 30 million dollars, um, why is that experience more um, painful than if you're uh, signing up for Netflix, essentially? So we, we really decided to focus on uh, corporate KYC or corporate customer onboarding uh, for financial institutions, law firms, accounting firms, uh, and real estate, because that's some of the biggest transactions you'll ever do. And the way they're, they currently onboard their customers is subpar. If you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever had to sell a house or do anything like that, it's, it's quite painful. So um, yeah, we launched the business about, about four years ago. Um, fast forward to today, we're in sort of three countries, um, New Zealand, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And uh, we've, we've done a Series B round of funding, which so we, I think in total, we've raised about 23 million pounds um, of, of venture. Obviously, a lot easier about a year ago than it is now, but luckily, we did our Series <laughs> yeah. B about a year ago. So that's good. <laughs> I talked to a lot of prospective customers as well, and a lot of people in the market through all the content that we do. And, you know, I see these recurring themes that I think you see as well, Lee, CFOs are carefully looking at every penny they're spending and they're trying to understand where they should cut budget, how they're going to survive through a recession, what they're going to do if they can't get their next round of funding. And, you know, we're seeing layoffs across the industry. I think a lot of the things I'm mentioning, a lot of people are seeing. But the thing that I'm seeing that I'm not sure everyone else is acknowledging is that when you look at this through a CFO perspective, Unfortunately, a lot of the companies that spent foolishly in the bull market are cutting foolishly in a bear market. So there's a famous case study um, by Harvard Business Review. And I wish I could remember all the details, but basically they talked about how companies weathered the storm through the global financial crisis. 
And you basically sort of have three options. You can just keep spending foolishly thinking we're going to spend our way through this recession. We're going to grow at all costs and come out the other end of it ahead. You can cut foolishly and say, we're just going to just make cuts across the board. We're not going to go deep and analyze anything. We're just going to start cutting costs wherever we can. And then, of course, there's this third option, which is kind of obvious as I'm explaining it, where we're going to really carefully analyze each area of our business and understand what investments are actually paying off for us and what investments uh, do we need to cut. And no big surprise, the companies that made it through the financial crisis and came out stronger were the third category. And the reason for this is the companies that continued to spend foolishly ran out of capital and just went out of business. That's obvious. The companies that cut foolishly, what they did is they gave up a tremendous amount of market share and also competitive advantage. So they might have survived the downturn, but when they came out the other side of it, the competitors that spent more wisely built a better mousetrap. They built a better operation. They had you know better sales and marketing, and they were able to acquire a massive amount of market share and come out the other side of this recession way ahead of their competition. I could say there's many times that some of them are overlooked and none of them are overlooked because it depends on the focus. But I'd say the two right now that are overlooked the most is customer success and revenue operations. And the reason is that, especially right now with what's going on in the macro environment, what's going on in the VC environment if you're a venture-backed company, or if you're a company trying to exit into a private equity, you're trying to figure out how to drive top-line sales. And sales always feeds the animal, but it's a longer cycle to get to that revenue in certain industries, especially in payments and fintech. It's not a seat or license-based business. It's a consumption model. And to get that consumption, it's more like having a child. A child doesn't nearly eat as much when they're three as they do when they're seven or when they're 16. To manage that cradle-to-grave experience for a customer, you have to figure out how the child, if you will, or the customer or set of customers will grow and adapt. And what makes that run and what makes that tick is the revenue operations team, meaning how do we structure the commercials on the initial contract? How do we structure the engagement model? And how we start that is probably not how it will mature. But revenue operations can play, uh, you know, basically internal hall room monitor and make sure that what sales and, and business development are selling are scalable and fit within the parameters of what the business needs. And then also making sure that the company stays profitable with each renewal or each upsell or each value-added service that managed service that you sell into the organization. And if you think about that in a holistic manner, you're building cohorts that are both productive and profitable. I'm going to travel back in time and um, and sort of uh, walk through sales ops, client success ops, marketing ops, and how it all came to be. Right, and um, so. A long, long time ago, before the turn of the century, right? <laughs> you had a thing called sales ops, and um, and we used to sell perpetual software, and you got your software in a box, and most of the time that was a CD-ROM or a floppy disk. You got it to a two-tier channel, so a distributor and a reseller, right? And uh, they typically speaking installed it, and um, and so a good sales ops person back then, when we were selling perpetual software was able to process a sales order, right? Because you actually had physical inventory that had to ship somewhere. You could design a comp plan that attracted sales talents, right? Because the number one, the number one goal of a comp plan is to attract and retain sales talents and pay them handsomely if they perform, right? Um, and so that part of the house, uh, run a forecast call, 
And so if you could, if you could do all of that, design and, and, and implement an awesome comp plan, uh, run a forecast call, uh, help out with KPIs, right? Do some reporting because we didn't even have CRM back then, right? And, um, and run your order management. You were amazing, right? And, um, and it wasn't easy, right? Because shipping a physical goods and, it was quite difficult actually back then, right? Making sure you had enough inventory and et cetera, et cetera. So then we saw the move to subscription and I got lucky working for McAfee because McAfee moved from perpetual to subscription to, to host it, um, you know, in, in the time span of, I think two years, right? So subscription obviously is the superior model, um, uh, uh, for any, for any tech company, right? Because your revenue just becomes more predictable and, um, you tend to retain your customers better. And when we were selling subscription, um, client success became a thing. And so then we have to think, think about things like, ooh, um, our install base metrics. We have to think about churn. Uh, we have to think about uh, GRR. Um, we have to spin up an account management organization, right? Or our, our AE is going to take care of all these clients that we have. Uh, so we had to start thinking about coverage models. Um, we have to think about client success, um, apps and software. Um, we have to think about our engagement model. We have to think about our, our customer journey, right? All these, all these buzzwords that everybody uh, sort of talks about right now. And so it was really hard to make sure that the person who was really awesome at order management, uh, the person who was really awesome at um, designing comp plans. I think, I think it works right now. So we're good. Yeah, thank you. I think the telco market is really interesting in the UK right now. There was a regulatory change a few years ago that basically spawned a, a bunch of investment. Previous, you know, the, the the history of telco in the UK has really been a monopoly, and that's been controlled by sort of one one large infrastructure provider. And and what they they made a re- regulatory change that allowed. I think there's about a hundred and to 150 of what they call altnets, um, who are building a physical asset in, you know, across the UK. And I think one of the the interesting things that I've seen in the market is essentially you have to be a really good construction company first. And you have all of these companies that are going and they're putting, you know, physical asset, physical like fiber optics in the ground. Um, and then they're and and you do have to build before you sell. Um and, and it's a really interesting proposition where you have to go into someone's community, rip up their roads. No one really wants you there. To be honest, they want to take their 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 kids to school. They don't want to be having to deal with road closures. And then you have to go back and try and sell them a product. So it, it's a bit different from that perspective. And and what I've seen across the market, what I think the market is is experiencing is you have you have a a combination of these companies have gotten bigger. You, you've gone from startup mode into scale up mode, and then you've also had to shift from being a construction company to what is essentially a retail brand. And those skill sets if you've got the right teams working together can be very complementary, but they're not the same. And and a lot of companies that I've seen in this market are more weighted toward construction and they sort of have a, um, I built a thing and they will come mentality and and the sales part is easy. And and I think a lot of companies in, in this um, sector at this time are really struggling to commercialize that. And that's because it's an entirely different approach. And we started with an outbound motion in our industry. Legal tech is, is uh, bought, it's not sold. It's bought, it's not sold. So an outbound motion has a limited ROI. So we determined that we needed to go all in on inbound and increase inbound demand and set up a marketing development team, a marketing development rep team to support that. 
So the first thing that we did is we decided to put it under marketing for the reasons that um, we believe it's better alignment with the buyer. And we also believe that it'll provide better feedback on MQL quality, which ultimately is going to drive the most SQLs. Second thing that we did is rather than try and set it up um, completely in-house without any insight, we went out and found a very experienced MDR manager, someone who's set up at least um, three different organizations with the MDR function. So we wanted to hire an educate uh, an experienced leader so we could have credibility from the start and we could also accelerate the process of setting it up and, and starting to uh, show results. And then it's a constant education with the sales team and that, hey, hot leads are still going to go directly to you. We're not going to slow them down. So if someone raises their hand and says, I want to talk to a salesperson, I want to see a demo, those are going to go to the salesperson. They're, they're sales qualified. They don't need to be nurtured. And that's what we want our salespeople working on. What we don't want our salespeople working on is someone who downloaded a white paper, someone who attended a webinar and didn't ask for a follow-up. Those are the types of leads that we want to use the MDR team to nurture and then turn over to the sales team at the right time. Our seller's biggest responsibility or the biggest lever they can pull to drive more revenue is building deep, wide relationships within their law firms. And that takes time and that takes um, a focused relationship builder to make that happen. And we don't want it. We don't want those relations, that relationship time diluted by doing campaign nurturing and outreach. Like many companies, Hone is in the process of moving up market. We have found that our larger customers, um, they create better land and expand opportunities. They're stickier over time. The CAC, you know, the LTV to CAC numbers are a lot healthier than they are with our SMB customers. It's more cost efficient to support them. You know, all the unit economics are better as we move up market. And so, um, our sales process continues to evolve and change. Certainly at, at Hone, um, and one of the most important things that we've done recently, which is something that um, I can't advocate for strongly enough, is for organizations that are wrestling through this decision, um, is that we cut off SMBs. Um, if you're coming in and, and you're you know in our SMB employee count range, um, we say sorry, we're not the right fit for you. Here are a couple of other companies that could be a better fit for you, um, and we don't work with them. And it's hard to look at potential sales and say no to those. Um, but that's what we've done, and it's um, it's brought a lot of focus and uh, discipline into uh, how we continue to evolve and build processes and evolve and build messaging and the whole go to market process around it. So everything that we're doing is reflective of a desire for us to move up market. So, you know, you think about, um, I'm not going to, you know, we're not doing kind of mega deal sales here, but, you know, our average contract is into the six figures. And so um, it's a lot uh, around doing a really good job of discovery. Um, our solutions consultants, we, we call them learning strategists, given that we're in this world of learning and development. Um, they play a very consultative role. They're not de demo jockeys. Like they're understanding the customer's you know, current learning landscape and how they want to improve that and what the competencies are that they're trying to develop in their team. And they're being very uh, thoughtful and prescriptive. Um, and it's not a super salesy conversation because our customers want 
an advisor. They want a consultant who can partner with them and help them drive towards business outcomes. And so um, our sales our account executives are doing a good job of evolving into that process. Um, but it certainly looks different and it requires um, a good deal of uh, discipline and kind of cross-functional coordination as you get different roles involved in that process. How do you um, gauge the success of that? Is it just based on conversions at the end of it or are you like measuring tracking anything else? Not necessarily. You know, we look at a couple things. So when we go and do it, we are looking at, yes, a conversion number, but but everyone's different with their buying windows and you might have hit the window wrong. You might have, you know, there's the whole adage of the statistic of like 3% of your market's buying, 7% is willing to hear you out and, and, and honestly could buy. There's 30% that hasn't been thinking about this, but they're persuadable to have a conversation and get the, the ball rolling. There's probably another 30% that is not ready right now. It's not a priority for a while. And then there's the final 10 to 20% that are just, they're never going to buy. They're never going to solve that problem. And um, I think it's important to have uh, enough conversations to where you hit most of that, you know, those, those different segments to get feedback from them. Because um, it's not just about how many calls are we going to turn into sales ops, right, opportunities. But it's also about how many of these accounts do we activate for later, right? Are they, are they in the market soon, eventually? If so, I want to break down. When I had these conversations, I want to be able to look at all the conversations that I had and I want to get a percentage breakdown of where people ended up. Yes, interested now. Cool. How, what's the percentage of our, of our conversation that did that? Yes, not interested now, right? But not never. What percentage of my list is that? Uh, no, not me, meaning we have our buyer persona wrong or our buying committee wrong. And we have to go find who it is that we are supposed to go after either through referral or better research. Or no, never. We're never going to solve this problem. It's not a priority for us, whatever, right? Um, and I want to figure out what that percentage is. And I want to make sure that I'm just, I'm looking at that percentage and, and, and seeing if it's in line with that three, seven, 30, 30, and 20% breakdown. Um, ideally better. Hopefully that answers somewhat. This company already had pretty good sales discipline, but applying another lens to it uh, and, and another layer to it around value selling, and in double kind of doubling down on on really good discovery and focusing on how we can advise the customer, listen to the customer based upon their problems and, and ultimately how it impacts the business. So we've spent a lot of time um, on doing really good discovery, taking that kind of problem solution value and bu building business cases with our constituents, with our champions, and helping them get projects approved when budgets are really, really tight and being questioned. They might have the budget, but it has to go through a whole other layer of getting it released. In order to do that, you need to be really, really effective at your value thesis and why you're doing this for the organization. Because any good leader isn't just going to buy software to buy software to make their lives either. It's got to make an impact to the business. So a lot of the time that we've been spending as an organization has been how do we create the skills or improve the skills around you know business value outcomes for our buyers and oftentimes the buyers don't know how to do this right they don't spend all day every day um, you know pitching projects and 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 you know buying software so we're really advisors to help them do that and to do that you really have to go deep 
Um, you have to build trust. You have to create credibility. You have to advise. You have to understand the space. Um, so those are the lot. Those are a lot of the things that we're doing um, from a sales execution perspective. The other thing that's interesting is because of the market condition, the number of influencers and constituents involved in the process has just you know multiplied. Um, and you have to make sure that you're not just staying single threaded. So it's a team sport. It's always been a team sport. Nobody wins alone. Leveraging the company and your team to build the relationship with the customer is really, really critical. And then the way that, that customers want to engage has kind of followed suit on how they buy consumer technology. Um, they may not want to talk to you. So you have to think about in the age of AI and automation, um, how you interact and engage with your buyers, um, how they actually want to collect and learn. Um, nurture is going to be all automated in, in the future. It's already started. So leveraging technology, we have some projects going on in our organization and how we actually can do automated discovery and then an automated demo based upon that. Because a lot of times you're talking as a sales team to people that maybe don't have budget or the timing's off from a standpoint of buying, but they want to learn about your organization. And sometimes they don't want to talk to you. They want to engage in a way that they engage buying, you know, a pair of AirPods or another consumer product. We have an entire team of support that's going to own this relationship that, and hopefully last longer than your individual relationship with this person because it is business to business. It's the Arbinger Institute and whatever the client organization is that is actually the relationship that we're managing here. And so teaching the, the team that, you don't have customers. Arbinger has customers. No customer is one person. An organization is full of a bunch of people that help things go right. We need to have multi-thread across all of these so that that individual relationship isn't the linchpin that we can make or break the relationship on, but rather we have all of these different layers uh, interwoven that help this relationship go right. Um, and, and I think that's an actual interesting transition point when you have this idea of things going right, it really isn't about what I think is right or what someone else thinks is right. And then that second principle is that, you know, delivering recurring revenue or excuse me, delivering recurring impact is what creates recurring revenue or rather recurring revenue is the product of delivering recurring impact. And so I have to be as invested in my client's desired outcomes as I am my own goals. And when I take that on, I am truly having a profound and deep relationship with that client organization in a sense that like, it doesn't matter how much money they pay me. I measure my success on their ability to achieve the outcomes that I committed to um, when we went into, you know, went into business with each other. And uh, that requires a very, a very profound level of understanding of their organization. And it also requires a level of commitment that I think a lot of businesses are failing and unwilling, frankly, to give to their clients where their goals matter like my goals matter. Uh, oftentimes, we, we like objectify them in a way by saying, hey, you're a vehicle to me growing, or you're in the way of my growth, or you're irrelevant to my growth. And so I don't really care about your outcomes unless they get me what I want. And the way we try to position things is, no, their impact is everything because that's the very reason we make revenue is because we're delivering it to them. So revenue is a byproduct and we got to focus first on impact. And so that business to business mentality of it's not person to person, it is truly 
the organization Arbinger is committed to their organization, as well as this idea that the relationships real, really predicated on our ability to impact them positively and deliver those outcomes. And then the revenue we get is what they pay us in exchange for that. That's what I think creates a scalable and sustainable business that doesn't depend on any one person to be successful, but is really the foundation of the two relationships in B2B. So I'd say that those things kind of unpack everything else. I think that managers, hiring managers in general, are kind of lazy. And again, they're looking at this as a process and maybe we have a process. We you know, use a grading system of some sort and we grade people along the way. You know, the extra data points are, are fine. Yeah. But where most hiring managers sort of fall is they don't really understand what their customers need from their salespeople. Right? And I, I challenge hiring managers. So, so, you know, tell me, have you asked your customers what they need your salespeople to be? Because they're, my perspective is, is that customers, prospects, hire you as a salesperson to help them make progress toward making a decision. That's really the relationship. You're being hired by the buyer to help them make a decision. What do they need you to be? If they're hiring a consultant to help them make this decision, what are the attributes that they would need that consultant to have? Well, those are the questions you need to ask your buyers. So it's not just a matter of doing your win-loss analysis, which is very important, and you come to some level of understanding, but it's actually being much more direct in than saying, well, yeah, what, what could we do to really better, to really help you as you're in this process? They'll tell you. You just have to ask. And so hiring managers need to add that step so that they know when they're, when they're interviewing people, they say, look, well, does this person really align with what our buyers need from us? In some cases, that may not be a specific you know, knowledge set that they need, the buyers need. Sometimes they just need somebody who can come in and ask them the right questions. Right? And if you're, you're a, there's a buyer who's hiring a consultant to come and help them make a decision, and this is a perspective I think sellers should have, is this consultant's not selling anything at that point. They've already been hired. Right? Their job is to go and ask questions, uncover the challenges and what the opportunities are, and help the buyer really understand those. Well, that's what you're trying to do as a salesperson. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.